The Guardian. On the 23rd of March 2020, it was announced that the UK was to go into lockdown. Around the world, too, countries had already or began to shut their bars, restaurants, schools and told people to maintain physical distance from one another. Some lockdowns were more successful than others. Sadly, here in the UK, over 126,000 people have died after catching COVID-19, a figure difficult to comprehend. Economies have been hit hard too, and social fissures have widened. One year on, we're asking what happens next. What should we expect from treatments and vaccines? And how long might COVID restrictions last for? Levels of adherence have been really, really good throughout this current lockdown. One of the vaccine companies has already put a new vaccine into phase one clinical trial. I do think it's helpful to open our horizon out a little bit and think about the wider, from my perspective, health implications. I'm Ian Sample and this is Science Weekly. To answer these questions, I was joined by a panel of experts. Mike Tildersley, an Associate Professor of Disease Modelling at the University of Warwick, Deborah Dunn-Walters, a Professor of Immunology at the University of Surrey, and Martin Landre, Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Oxford. Martin, your co-lead of the recovery trial, tell us a little bit about that trial and what have you learned over the past 12 months? The recovery trial is uh, a randomised trial of possible treatments for patients who get admitted to hospital with COVID. We established it in incredible time, in just nine days uh, this time last year, and set out really to get very clear answers on initially some simple treatments, hydroxychloroquine, which was widely being pr- uh, promoted from uh, scientists, uh, physicians, politicians, the media or simple steroids treatments like dexamethasone. And what have we learned over the course of the last year? Well, I suppose we should start with two wins, being that we learned that low doses of steroid actually save lives in in patients who've been admitted to hospital. And more recently, that further tackling the immune system with a drug called tocilizumab also uh, saves lives and does so on top of the dexamethasone, on top of the steroid. So those are the two wins. There have also been other important lessons. That treatment, hydroxychloroquine, which everybody said was going to be a wonder drug, uh, actually turns out to be useless for these sorts of patients, and so we don't use it. Convalescent plasma, taking blood with antibodies in it from people who've had the infection and giving it to people who've now currently trying to fight the infection, that's been given to well over 100,000 people in the, in the United States. It turns out that when you do the trial, it doesn't have any impact on what happens to those patients. Um, particularly in the hospital setting. Mike, let's bring you in. You've been doing a lot of modelling of the pandemic over the the past year. How are things looking right now um, to you after all the the work you've been doing around this? I mean, we're we're used to these metrics of cases and hospitalisations, sadly deaths as well, now vaccination data. Give us your view of where we are right now. That's a really big question. I mean, obviously, if we go back 12 months, we do know that there was modelling work done pretty much about this time last year, which was really looking at where we feared we might be if interventions were not put in place in terms of number of people going into hospital, in terms of the number of deaths. 
Um, as we advance through time, of course, we know that we had new, more transmissible variants that emerged. So a lot of the forecasts coming in over the Christmas period and into January were suggesting that there was a need for another lockdown, particularly with this more transmissible variant. So there was a lot of um, learning that happened had to happen in the early stages. But now the, the modelling work really is very much focused on optimal strategies to exit lockdown and the impact of vaccination. And of course, we know just a couple of weeks ago, the, the roadmap was published for exiting lockdown, shall we say. And the key thing here is actually this five-week interval between different control measures. And that's actually quite important. And this is something that the, you know, the modelers have been very um, sort of providing a lot of advice on. That what we're really looking at now is because we have a vaccine, which sort of helps us along the way, it takes about two to three weeks every time you have a control change before you can identify the effect of that control change in terms of the number of cases that are reported. But it takes about a week or two more before we see evidence of a change affecting, say, hospital admissions and deaths. And that's why when, as we saw children went back to school on Monday last week, we need about two to three weeks before we start to see a signal in, say, the R number or the growth rate of the virus, and then another week or two more before we see evidence of what effect that has upon hospital admissions and so forth. A lot of the, the modelling forecasts are suggesting that dependent upon the effectiveness of the vaccination campaign, we may expect to see some surge in cases as we start to release lockdown. There is the need as we go forward to be reactive and responsive to that. Of course, rapid control is what's needed and it was what was needed throughout so that we can potentially stem the risk of a surge in infections. But the key thing to me is we need adherence to the rules that are in place at the moment as we start to unlock. And of course, we need significant uptake of the vaccination. And is it possible to say anything about how the epidemic we are facing in the UK at the moment compares with the epidemic back in March when we had our our very first lockdown, March last year? I'm, I'm interested in how the, the two situations compare, where we are now and where we were a year ago. It's very difficult to compare like with like because, of course, the testing rate was a lot lower. So we can look at the peak in April in terms of number of cases and say, well, OK, significantly lower than the 60,000 plus that we saw in January. But absolutely, that doesn't tell the whole story because our testing rates were so much lower. If we look at the R numbers, actually, the R numbers that are being published in this lockdown are vary a little bit region to region, but are somewhere between about 0.6 and 0.8, which actually, and I, and I think, you know, I probably am one of those who didn't expect that in this lockdown, we have the same levels of adherence that we saw last April. But actually, this is indicative of the fact that levels of adherence have been really, really good throughout this current lockdown. So I think that's very promising. And as I said, I hope as we start to unlock the country, as it were, over the next couple of months, we can keep those levels of adherence to the measures that are in place and, of course, allow the vaccination campaign to help us along the way so that we can get this route sort of back to freedom, as it were, in the summer. Deborah, if we can come to you. I mean, Mike just mentioned the the new variants that we've seen, um, the inevitable new variants that we've seen on, on this uh, with this virus, does it look like we will need to be updating vaccines by later this year? Do you think? What's the current thinking on that? One of the vaccine companies has already put a new vaccine into phase one 
clinical trial, it's safety trial to deal with the B1351 variant. And that is in response to the fact that the initial kind of immunology, if you like, looking at it, indicated that antibodies in people who'd been vaccinated didn't work as well on that variant as they did on some of the other variants. So whenever there's a new variant, we don't assume that each new variant is going to need a new vaccine because there have already been a number of variants and current vaccines have been shown to be effective against them. But when we can see that there is a a decrease in the response to a new variant, then some companies are looking at changing their vaccines. And this is sensible because if it's easy to change some of these vaccines, which it is because some of the platforms that they're running on, when people don't have such a good immune response, they don't have as much safety margin between the level of their immune response and the, that they have and the level that they need. And so a decrease in immune response means that there's more likely to be people getting uh, severely ill. Is it too early to be heartened by what seems to be some signs of convergent evolution with the virus in that it's hitting on the same, some of the same types of mutations to adapt to the new sort of situation it finds itself in? And I'm thinking about that, particularly about this um, E484K mutation, which is in the... uh, the 1351 variant you mentioned that was first spotted in South Africa, but also in the variant that we've seen, uh, P1 from Brazil, and has also cropped up separately on the the Kent variant, uh, B117, that we've seen over here. Is that encouraging in some sense? The fact that it's just this particular mutation that seems to be cropping up everywhere, and we've got a handle on what the immune response does to those variants, that's useful for us to know because it's starting to feel familiar because we've got data on that. If it's cropping up in lots of different places, it does seem as if that's where the virus is happy sitting in order to spread. There are a lot of biophysicists who can do modelling and try and predict what other possible mutations might cause a problem in terms of increased binding to the ACE2 receptor on the cells in order to be more highly infective. Whenever these viruses are mutating, there will be mutations that make it more fit for purpose and there will be mutations that make it less fit for purpose. And there's always going to be a trade-off in the structure. When you change the structure of the protein, it might increase the virus protein efficacy at being infected, but it might decrease something else. There may come a point at which there's a balance there and it can't get any worse. But that's a very optimistic view there may also still be scope for a change to happen which could make it even more infectious or even more dangerous. So at the moment, we don't have the data, but there are people who are doing the modelling and uh, you can do in vitro studies to look at the effect of changing the structure of the protein on whether it can escape the immune system or not, for example, or whether it will affect the binding to cells. So this is all work that's underway because... Ideally, if we can do this work in the lab and on the computer, then we could predict what other mutations might come up in future 
And then the vaccine manufacturers would be able to get ahead of the game in predicting where it might go. So it's still work in progress, but there are people working on it. Martin, is there a possibility that new variants that come along could actually impact on the types of treatments that work or their clinical impact? Part of the problem is the virus itself. And then part of the problem is then particularly the immune response to the virus. In some people, it then becomes the immune system that drives the lung damage. And then the third element is, and the consequences of things like blood clotting in the small vessels in the, in the lungs. By and large, it's reasonable to expect that the drugs that dampen the immune response and the dr- drugs that might or might not work for thrombosis would stand the test of time. In other words, they would be relatively unaffected by the variants. Drugs that target the virus itself is a different ball game. Actually, at the moment, you know, they've really only one antiviral drug that's shown any success. The antibodies targeted at the spike protein. So this is a, a form of giving manufactured antibody targeted at the spike protein on the outside of the virus, stopping the virus do- doing its damage by entering cells, also stopping the, the virus um, or, or promoting the virus being cleared by your own immune system. But the problem is that those are uh, susceptible to changes in the structure of spike protein. In other words, they are susceptible to viral variants. And already one can see that for some of the monoclonal antibodies that, that have been produced against and then uh, some of the variants. Now, the problem with those drugs is that whilst the virus is susceptible to it, they do seem like they could be quite effective early in the disease. We don't know yet whether they'll be effective late in the disease, particularly for patients in hospital. Maybe it's too late by then and the immune response has taken over and is driving everything. I think that there are some big questions about whether any antiviral works by the time somebody gets to hospital. That's one one big question. And the second one is whether we can find any antiviral that is affordable, scalable and deployable at the scale that's needed particularly around the world. Mike, I wanted to bring you in to ask you a bit about how the vaccines might shape what we come to experience in the the months ahead in, in this country in particular. What do we know about whether these vaccines are preventing the spread of COVID and how does that feed into what the year ahead looks like? There's still some uncertainty regarding how effective they are against blocking infections and subsequently blocking transmission. Certainly, if we look at the use of the the Pfizer vaccine and the the situation of the data coming out of Israel, we are getting pretty promising evidence that with the Pfizer vaccine, they actually have very high levels of blocking transmission. If I sort of just run you through a scenario here, this will explain it. At the moment, we are under severe lockdown. And of course, the fact that the R number is less than one, we're not getting very much transmission. And of course, hospital occupancy and deaths are going down from very high levels. That's, of course, a feature of the fact that we are in lockdown. As we start to get more protection um, and as we start to unwrap lockdown, of course, the R number will go up as we unlock. Hopefully, the vaccine should enable the R number to go down a little bit. But if protection against infection and transmission was low, then we would expect the R number would go up a lot. Now, it may be that the vast majority of those people are protected against developing severe symptoms, but not all of them will. So if we sort of rewind 
just about almost exactly 12 months, so before any controls were in place, the R number for COVID was round about three, obviously a lot higher than it is now. But of course, now we have the new variant in place. So if these vaccines didn't block transmission at all, then the R number could go up even potentially higher than three. And of course, I'm not saying that they don't block transmission. Well, we know that's not the case. But let's say, you know, in this scenario, they didn't block transmission at all. Then we'd have a very high R number. And even with the vast majority of the population protected against severe symptoms, those that weren't would be under much higher risk of developing symptoms that would force them to have to go into hospital and potentially sadly die. So that's why there's always been this push really for a very careful stepping out of lockdown so that we don't expose those individuals that may not be protected to much more risk of infection and developing severe symptoms. In the longer term, of course, this will need to be looked at. We do know that, of course, a vaccine doesn't mean you're immune from infection forever. You know, every year we've had outbreaks of seasonal influenza and we've had some some level of infections and some level of deaths from seasonal influenza every year. Is that something that we are prepared to do as we go into the winter months to allow for an open society? And if so, what are we going to do about vaccination campaigns to potentially protect the vulnerable? I do think it's helpful to open that discussion and open our horizon out a little bit and think not just about you know, how many patients are hospitalised from COVID or how many patients sadly die from COVID, but also think about the wider, from my perspective, health implications. We saw during the first lockdown last year that the number of patients presenting to hospital with symptoms of acute heart attack plummeted. We saw during the first lockdown last year that the number of patients going to see their GP with symptoms which were strongly suggestive of bowel cancer plummeted. We can see on the routine data that there's still a substantial backlog in people having the relevant investigations and treatments for some of these diseases. And of course, those are long-term diseases where the full consequence of not getting sufficiently early and accurate and, 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 and relevant treatment may or may not be felt for some time to come. And so COVID is really important because people die from COVID. But COVID is also really important because it takes up um, resources and healthcare capacity um, that is also needed to deal with those other conditions. And finally, COVID is not the only infection that uh, we should be worrying about. There is a question about what will the impact of seasonal influenza be next winter and beyond which could again place another big burden on the health system. And so I do think when we're thinking about what levels of, of infection can we tolerate, we have to think about the wider implications for um, you know, patients who don't have COVID, but definitely need support from healthcare and so, and so on. There are a lot of young people who have long-term effects of COVID that we still don't understand yet. There's a lot of people that are not going to the dentist and to the hospital and to the doctors who should be. But just in terms of what level of infection we're willing to live with in terms of COVID, I would like to see uh, an analysis comparing the rate of variant emergence with the prevalence of variant in the population, because I think that's a very important question. There's a lot of concern that if we have 
vaccines and measures that maybe stop us going into hospital, but don't stop us passing the virus around between each other, then are we increasing the risk of viruses emerging in the future? I think uh, we should do an analysis of that to feed into that discussion on what level of infection are we willing to live with. Mike, alongside the treatments and the vaccines, we're still going to need public health measures in place to keep this virus under control, by the looks of things anyway. As we unlock, as we ease these restrictions, what kinds of measures are we still going to be need to be taking as we go towards the summer, into the autumn, and then further into the winter when presumably things may pick up uh, from wherever they are? I'm probably very much of the position that I push back a little against some of the, frankly, quite dystopian views that are sometimes um, put across in the media of, we're going to have so, you know some measures around forever, which I find actually quite worrying because I think that I worry about kind of the long-term damage to, say, mental health and well-being of having long-term social distancing measures in place. And again, I think it's something that we've not discussed enough. You know, I really worry about the idea of every winter for the foreseeable future, we're going to have to have something like a lockdown or relatively severe social distancing measures in place to prevent a surge of infections. And it all comes down to what our long-term objectives are. And I think that's actually something that's very important that the government need to think about. We need to consider what infrastructure we live in. In this country, everybody is inside in winter because it's cold and it's wet and it's miserable. And the heating bills go up if you open the windows. But we know for aerosol transmitted diseases that if you keep your windows open or if you spend more time outside, the risks of of transmitting infection is a lot lower. I think the population as a whole has learned an awful lot about infection control. Um, You know, as biologists and and medics, we we kind of grow up with that in in our professions. Um, But now the population also has learned a lot. And it's very long term, but I think we need to be thinking about things like building regulations for new buildings. What heating systems have they got in? And are they infection friendly? And so that is quite long term. But, you know, small things like that might make a difference in future for future infections. Deborah, I know it's tricky given where we are now and there are so many moving parts in all of this. But it'd be interesting to hear what you see as the sort of likely scenario going ahead um, in this country for, for the rest of the, the epidemic this year. So for this year, I'm really hoping that the numbers look right at each stage of coming out of lockdown that there aren't huge increases in our numbers and and we realise that the vaccine's not working. Because if we gradually come out of lockdown and it works, then people will feel a lot better. The points that have been made about people not feeling safe to go into hospital and their mental well-being are hugely important. We still need to be patient. We need a huge amount of monitoring going on to make sure that this is safe to come out of this lockdown in this manner. But I'm optimistic that it will work. And personally, you know, I haven't seen my mother for well over a year uh, and I would be really looking forward to that. I'm actually relatively optimistic about the vaccination campaign. I think it's been going far better, to be honest. If, If I'm honest with myself, it's going far better than I thought it would in January. I think the rollout's been going really well. And actually... A lot of the estimates of effectiveness of the vaccines, not just in preventing severe symptoms, but in terms of preventing 
transmission appear to be above what our inputs to the models were a month or so ago. So I hope, provided we don't end up getting a large number of cases of variants that evade the vaccines in the coming months, that we hopefully will proceed with this route back to normality in the summer. And from a personal perspective with me, I mean, it sounds really corny, but similar to Deborah, I mean, my my parents live up in Yorkshire, where I'm from, and my children have not seen their grandparents for many months now. And I think it's the simple things, you know, I would quite happily, and this may not be a popular view, but I would quite happily sacrifice going to the pub for another few months just to enable my mum and dad to see their grandchildren. Martin, final word from you. The last 12 months have been you know, pretty horrible for a lot of people. Exhausting, stressful, isolating. But at the same time, actually, I think there are a number of things we should be very proud of. I think actually British science has really stood out. The reason we pick up these variants is because we look for them and we have a system that is, is if you like, scanning. And actually also the, the clinical trials. You know, the UK has led in all of these areas. I think we do have to make everything sustainable. A lot of stuff has happened because, pe- because individuals have worked excessively hard Um, And that is not good for those individuals and is not sustainable for us as a system. And the quality of all our lives is not just about health. The quality of our lives also relates to to culture, whether that is in sport or it's in art or it's in music. That's the sphere that actually makes life enjoyable. Health is the sphere that makes that enjoyment possible. We've been focusing on better vaccines. Uh, We've been focusing on finding variants. We've been focusing on the modelling. Actually, we have to remember that the purpose of all this is to try and uh, produce a rounded quality of life that we all want. But we are going to have to be steady about that. Very finally, I have to say, you know, we've spent the last period of time having a great discussion about science, about numbers. But we have to remember behind Every one of these numbers is a person. Many of those people are no longer with us. That's a tragedy for them, their families, and for all of us. And so I don't think we should forget, for all the glories of the science, the scale and the frequency at which we see the numbers, there are real personal human stories behind every one of those. And that's why we care, and that's why we do what we do. Thank you again to Martin Landre, Mike Tildesley and Deborah Dunn-Walters. On Wednesday, our sister podcast Politics Weekly will also be marking a year since the UK first went into lockdown, discussing the week Boris Johnson made the announcement and looking at the growing calls for a public inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic. Search for Politics Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening today and over the past year. As ever, stay safe and we'll see you back here on Thursday. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.